Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real-life behind-the-scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. As you know if you've been loyally listening, we're wrapping up our series for September on alternative therapy interventions when talk therapy isn't working. At the start of this series, we covered why talk therapy isn't always effective. And since then, we've talked about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, as well as trauma processing therapies like OEI and EMDR. Today, I'm so excited to be here with Michael Mariano, who's an expert in the field of neurotherapy. And I'm really looking forward to sharing with you about this exciting and innovative area of psychology that I anticipate will be a significant direction for the future of therapy practice. So with that, let's dive in. Welcome, Michael. I'm really excited to have you here today. I'm so excited we were finally able to like coordinate a time. It's like the yes, greatest challenge on earth these days is coordinating <laughs> yes. scheduling. Yeah. I'm well, so glad that this me. worked I'm out. I'm so excited as well. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of your kind of story and background. What do you do? How long have you been doing it? Um, kind of like sure. what are the what are the primary pieces of your work that you're up to? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would say that let's see. I, I started doing basically what's called neurotherapy uh, when I was doing an internship for my master's degree in counseling psychology. And I think mm-hmm. that's when I first really got into what I'm doing now, which is essentially okay. what's called neuropsychophysiology, like the more broader term. So but, much fancier uh, now. So, so much fancier. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see that it includes uh, there's neuro, there's uh, brain physiology, and then just overall body physiology. That's important. Mm-hmm. So essentially, I was doing my master's and I had to finish my internship. And I had a fortunate uh, connection to be able to work at a clinic that actually did that. So they were needing yeah. counselors. And then essentially, I got exposed to quite a lot of the uh, more physiological measures, such as looking at brain electrical activity, uh, measuring different things like the body as well. So things like heart rate variability. Right. So that just really connected to me. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that there's just so much that's present if you're able to actually access and understand what's going on in both the body and the brain. And so that's Mm -hmm. basically how I kind of started uh, from that point. So I worked at that particular place for about, uh, I'd say 10, 11 years. It's quite a long time. So I saw, thankfully it was quite a blessing. I was able to see 
quite a number of different types of clients as well. Yeah. And that was really nice exposure for me because I was able to see basically different kinds of patterns or things that you might see in people's brain mm. maps. And at some point, I just wanted to do my own thing because I realized that there's just so much out there in terms of what's, I would say, cutting edge right now. So there's different yeah. types of approaches, different types of neurofeedback training, different types of neurostimulation. I'll get into that as you ask questions, but uh, yeah. there's just such a wealth of possibilities there to uh, have for quite a number of different types of clinicians as well. So, I mean, yeah. I think that's why I'm really excited to have this conversation and to get to have it with you of all people, because I think that there's lots of people who try to kind of touch into this area. We were actually talking about this in yes. a phone call a couple of days ago, mm -hmm. um, that there's lots of people who kind of try to like add it as a little piece in their practice. But there's not a lot of people who make this kind of like the full scope of what they're doing and really embrace right. um, like the depth and degree of it because it is really um, innovative and it is really mm. emerging. And I think what's really mm. cool about it is across the board, I think the like top people in this field agree that this is the future for mm -hmm. therapy that accessing more and more about the brain, understanding more and more about the brain, being yes. able to give people yes. feedback about how their brain is right. currently operating, what it looks like for it to optimally operate and how we get mm -hmm. from here mm -hmm. to there using mm -hmm. mechanisms that work with our brain is really yes. the future of what healing is going to look like. So I am so mm -hmm. excited <laughs> to have that conversation with you because I think that you're the person I know who is Yay. the furthest along in, in kind of being on that cutting edge piece. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, we can talk about that at some point during the interview, just some thoughts that I have about why maybe you might not mm -hmm. necessarily see too many people doing it or they're trying to do it as well, but there's a struggle to integrate it. So I think there's a number yeah. of reasons that we can discuss. Totally. Well, and I think we kind of circle back to that in a bit. I know one of the questions mm. I have kind of further down um, okay. the road is why isn't this used more conventionally? Right. And so okay. I'd love for us to kind of circle there sure. in a little bit. For now, let's for start sure. out by um, maybe you giving me a bit of um, just like, tell me about the approach that you use. Tell me about what it looks like and how it's different than conventional therapy treatment models, mm. because it's mm. really different. And then treatment compared to, say, something like counseling, psychology, psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah. totally. Well, I think when, one of the big things about it is that you're able to actually measure and understand something that's actually very tangible. So when mm -hmm. you're thinking about counseling and psychotherapy, you think, okay, well, someone is feeling depressed, sad, anxious. But all those things, conditions, symptoms, they all have physiological correlates. I mean, your experience yeah. is based on what your brain, what your body is doing. So it just makes so much logical sense to try and understand and explore how our brains are functioning yeah. and our bodies, but specifically brain is what we're referring to here with the neurotherapy. And so there are yeah. means to do that. And one of the, the ways to do it is you basically measure brain electrical activity. That's one of the main things that I do with the neurotherapy that I do. Right. And yeah. with that, what happens is you measure a brain electrical activity at the scalp of the head. So just at the top of the head. But from that, there's just such a wealth of information. So different kinds of measures that you can look at how your brain is functioning, the different parts of the brain, 
Uh, there's areas that are called uh, what are called Brobman areas that you can specifically look at to see, oh, if you have trouble with speech, well, it would make sense that the part of the brain that's important for speech and language might be affected. So why don't we look at that area and actually address it mm -hmm. and see what is going on there? So yeah. uh, I might be getting ahead of myself, but basically, I think one of the most important things to start with when you're doing neurotherapy is absolutely a really comprehensive assessment to see how your brain is functioning. Yeah. And so what I mean by, by comprehensive is that you want to kind of embrace different types of measures and approaches to really try to understand as much as you can to help both yourself as a therapist and the client to understand how the brain is functioning. And yeah. I think kind of to allude to what we might talk about later is often when people are trying to do maybe neurofeedback, I think they're not starting from that singular important piece, which is you don't want to miss things that are important when you're doing an analysis. And I think totally. if you look at some of the approaches that people have with neurofeedback, often it's, it's just one modality or it's just one approach yeah. or just one kind of system that they might use. And that could be very good. But again, if you really want to, I think, affect more positive, specific, global change, then it does start from that comprehensive assessment. Yeah. So that's I mean, I think that makes therapy. a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? Like, I mean, I think about it like, logical. well, and I mean, like, I think that the, the contrast or comparison, I guess, that, that resonates with me in terms of what I think people would maybe be familiar with is I get a lot of clients who are like work safe or ICBC clients who had some kind wow. of injury, right? Mm -hmm. And they'll go for, you know, initially if they were hit by a car, they have, you know, discomfort and pain in their neck and shoulder. And so they'll go for the like CT scan or x-ray or whatever yes. that is like really located in this one area. And then they'll go for physio that directs that specific area yep. for improvement. But often they miss because they didn't mm. do the like full scan of this mm. whole side. Like they missed that like ribs were out of place and that, uh, right, like yes. the shoulder is popped yes. up funny, that there's all of these other injuries. Mm. And so they do physio on this, but they don't necessarily get better because they haven't done a comprehensive of, enough of an assessment to be able to really identify mm. all of the things yes. and how they inform each other, right? Like my neck Absolutely. is informed by my ribs. And so yeah. if my ribs are, my neck is always going to be shifting to compensate different, mm. right? Like it's always going to stay not quite healed because it's mm -hmm. reliant mm. on other parts of me being functional as yes. well. Right. And so yes. I love this idea of a comprehensive assessment because it just makes sense that you would want to mm -hmm. know, especially in like our brains are so intertwined. Like when I think about our brains, I think about it like a ball of yarn. Like there's mm -hmm. no one part that is fully and totally independent of every other part. You can't yes. 100% just isolate and know, well, that's the problem because there's right. so much interconnection. Right. And that makes a lot of sense because I've seen, for example, people where they really just kind of swear by a certain kind of assessment that isn't comprehensive, in my opinion, right. where you would measure just a few spots in the head, for example. And yeah you, yeah, you can get information that's important and useful, but then you just miss out on so much. So for example, if you're trying to understand deeper structures in the brain, there's actually no other way except by using some of the more standard uh, multiple channel recordings that you can do with uh, quantitative mm -hmm. 
encephalography, which is the name of what the assessment is that I do. Yeah. QEEG, if people don't yeah. know what that is. Yeah. Hmm. So I'm curious. This is like a very different approach. So you were in your Master's of Counseling Psychology yeah. program. Um, and we went, we were in the same program. I was a couple of years behind you, I think. Um, and out of that, you emerged into this thing that is very different than I think what that program tends mm. to really focus on or promote in the types of therapists it imagines it's going to put out. Um, and so what drew you to neurotherapy? Like, what did you find you got the most value out of in it that, that really drew you to it? Well, I think it's actually what I already just mentioned that the brain is just so important with so many things that mm. we experience, like just name any symptom and there's a brain correlate yeah. to how you're actually experiencing that. So it just makes sense that you'd want to look at that and try to understand it as best as you can. So essentially with neurotherapy, at least at the very least with a comprehensive assessment, you can get a better understanding of uh, like something that's more validating for a client. It's more tangible. It's an actual physiological mm -hmm. measure. So again, like when someone comes in and they might have anxiety, well, what's interesting is you can have very different reasons why you have the anxiety, but you likely won't understand yeah. that until you actually see, okay, how is your brain functioning? Uh, oh, you're actually not getting good sleep. So maybe that's contributing to your anxiety less so than this disorder that you might have been given. And so you might right. see a condition like that. Uh, another example would be, oh, just a huge one. So oftentimes people have, for various reasons, constant concentration problems, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll get kids that get diagnosed with ADHD, uh, attention issues. But then there are times where if you look at the brain, you might actually see that, you know, I don't actually see any major cognitive deficits relating to attention. Mm -hmm. You have some emotional regulation issues. You have right. sleeping problems. You have anxiety. And that is yeah. likely what's contributing, contributing to your problems with concentration. So yeah. that also leads to why I think some more conventional methods. So if you look at psychology, but then also we say with medicine, where it kind of mm -hmm. is lacking they also don't have necessarily a comprehensive assessment. And that's really yeah. interesting because here you are having medications that have very specific effects. It makes sense mm -hmm. to try and understand the brain before you actually say, oh, this person might benefit from a stimulant to help with their concentration. Mm -hmm. It might, and it might actually have very useful uh, applications. But oftentimes, you know, if something like that happens where someone has more of a brain that doesn't shut down, you don't necessarily want to have some areas of the brain stimulated and that's where you mm, need to go yeah. it's kind of mixed it works but it doesn't so yeah. again i think the the brain yeah. assessment is quite a huge uh, factor mm -hmm. in having a positive experience with neurotherapy i mean it does just make sense um i love some of the examples that you've brought up and i'm i guess i'm curious if we kind of shift gears a little bit what are some of the advantages for this approach for neurotherapy in working with people who um, are working on the front lines and tend to have some of the specific challenges that are common to that professional group? So like burnout, depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other kinds of occupational stress injuries. Where does it fit for that, do you find? Wow. So we can talk a long period of time on each of those <laughs> symptoms. So I'll, right. I'll just give an example. Uh, let's see. So you mentioned yeah. 
like for example, okay, uh, frontline workers that what, what's a common symptom or condition that they might have? PTSD. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you experience negative events, experiences in the workplace. And what's amazing is that I, I honestly think there's not enough support and understanding of how to actually address that. You know, it's, it's almost like people are just left, you know what, that's just your job. You just have to kind of stick with it and you get used to doing it. But absolutely, it has an impact on how you function, what you subjectively mm-hmm. notice, but then even the brain. And so I'll give you an example Uh, with PTSD or just trauma in general or negative experiences that you have, whatever you might call it, the brain, uh, one possibility is that there are protective measures and these are healthy things. So if you would get exposed to something that's very traumatic, very, very tragic, for example, the brain might be overwhelmed by the emotional intensity of that. So Mm -hmm. you can actually see some patterns that emerge when you do a brain map to say, oh, look, it looks like the brain is increasing certain frequencies, like maybe theta or uh, low alpha. And that could be an indication that the brain is basically shutting off, like it's trying not Mm -hmm. to connect to these visuals of what was experienced or even other types of stimulation that it experienced. So that's a good protective measure at that time. But then of course, what happens is that measure persists. And so in your everyday life, you still see people kind of withdraw, for example, or literally there are obvious uh, markers for dissociation that occur. And so, Mm -hmm. again, that's something that you can actually see in the brain map. Mm -hmm. And then if you do see it, then it just makes sense to go to that area of the brain that you're seeing it, try to optimize it. And then absolutely, you'll likely see a change or shift in your symptoms because you're actually affecting change on what's stuck or what's blocked. So, totally. I mean, again, PTSD is, is one of the examples there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I feel like that perfectly transitions us to what does it look like to do it? So I have a number of questions built into that question. Sure. Okay. Um, I'll lay them out. And if I need to go back to some of them, you tell me. But okay. what I'm curious about is what would someone expect how long would a session look like? Mm-hmm. How often do sessions happen? And how many right. sessions does it normally take for something like PTSD as an example okay. to experience some amount of change that feels of like meaning and consequence? Right. No yeah. short or like small request here, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's like, okay, wow. That, that it, those are very comprehensive answers that are required. <laughs> Yeah, answer those. No, but there. I recognize that, that the are, answer is really. I can't answer this, Lindsay. Right? Like right, everything's right. going to be different. I get that. But if we were to kind of give it a bit of a like, on average, what does it tend to look like? Well, the first initial assessment. That's basically where we are measuring the brain waves with QEG. Mm-hmm. And so what you do there is, we basically have what looks like a shower cap, and it has pre-positioned electrodes on it. So it looks like this. So this just goes on. So for our friends who are listening on the audio only version, Michael's demoing. So you should go check this out on YouTube. (laughs) And for our YouTube watchers, you are in luck because we get like a full visual. Yeah. Right. So essentially there's pre-positioned electrodes, meaning it's based on a standardized 1020 system and that won't change. So we know the areas consistently that we're measuring. And so that's informed from research and what they do with uh, neuroscience. 
So what we're measuring again is brain electrical activity with these electrodes. And yeah. that's a, usually a two hour session. So it just takes time to put the cap on, to put gel into the, the different areas. And then mm -hmm. what I like to do is spend extra time though, to do a little bit of an analysis and then try to provide feedback right away during that initial assessment. Right. So usually about two hours, uh, but that's where it can go from anywhere from two hours to, you know, I, I try to give some extra time because I think the moment that you start to see how your brain is functioning and then literally have visuals about, oh, look at the white matter in the brain and the fibers and how it's actually functioning. It just raises so much both questions, but then also uh, more of a validation, I would say. Like people just think, oh, wow, that makes sense. You know, like, of course, that's why I'm feeling headaches because I can see that right. this part of the brain is not doing so well. And that's linked to perhaps the yeah. experience of some headaches. So yeah. that's the assessment. And then in terms of what we do after, uh, I would say sometimes people get confused about all these terms that come across, like with regard to neurotherapy. So one of them is, okay, well, what's neurofeedback? What's biofeedback? Mm -hmm. So I think first start with, again, the assessment that we do. So that what I do is the QEG assessment, the comprehensive assessment. And then two specific things that I do for, for treatment sessions is neurofeedback training, which is what often people okay. hear about. And so neurofeedback training is when you basically help the brain and train it to increase or decrease, for example, certain frequencies that you want to yeah. push the brain to adopt. So it's based on operant conditioning principles. So for example, okay. if you're working with a client that has ADHD, what we, you would do is, let's just say that there's a increase in slow frequencies. So almost like daydreaming states in the brain. So what you want to do there is you would reward the brain when it's reducing those frequencies. And so it's as simple as there's a spaceship that actually moves whenever you're concentrating, whenever your daydreaming brainwaves start to decrease. And so kids yeah. literally train themselves to do this. So as they're yeah. concentrating- so it's like a video image, moves, right? Yeah, that's right. It's almost like yeah. a very healthy video game <laughs> that you yeah. can do with kids. And that has a lot of research because that's one of the foundational, I guess, uh, series of studies and, and researchers, they've looked at a lot of uh, applications for ADHD using neurotherapy and specifically neurofeedback training. Yeah. Uh, so again, there's neurofeedback training, but what I've actually focused a lot more of uh, in the past, say, four or five years is what's called neuromodulation or neurostimulation. Okay. And this involves a number of types of stimulation. So what we're trying to do there is uh, different principles. So one of the principles is what's called entrainment. So if let's just okay. say we wanted to increase a certain frequency in the brain, what we're doing is we're actually going directly to that part of the brain mm -hmm. and giving it that frequency. So it's the okay. principle of almost like with music, when you listen to something that's kind of a slow beat, you follow that beat, mm -hmm. if it's faster, you follow that rhythm. So the brain is like that. It likes to mimic or copy yeah. frequencies. It likes to so mirror. It a, yeah. yeah, it's basically mirroring. So that's a very uh, powerful tool to help guide the brain to a more healthy state, especially once you know what frequencies or what areas of the brain that you want to work with. Uh, so yeah. different types of stimulation. I know this might be a, a long list, but I'll just name a few things. So there's yeah. microcurrent transcranial stimulation, and I use that often. Okay. 
Uh, this is not ECT. So just to make that clear. So ECT, you see in the I hospital, literally had this conversation with someone just the other day. Okay. Yeah. Really, really. Yeah. So, and that's important. So that's why I like to use the word microcurrent because uh, I think just even from my experience, the brain responds not to strong levels of stimulation. It's actually lower levels of stimulation. In fact, the brain waves mm-hmm. themselves are quite low level intensity. We literally need an amplifier to measure them. So mm-hmm. that's a good thing because, uh, again, the microcurrent stimulation is very low. So to just give a baseline with ECT, it's about 600 to 800 milliamps in intensity. Okay. What I'm using is 0.1, 0.2, yeah. 0.3. So it's literally quite a magnitude lower than ECT. And that stimulation is very, very powerful because uh, especially in neuroscience uh, areas, you'll see a lot of research being done on specific areas that they either stimulate. So to do entrainment, what I mentioned, but also to either increase or decrease activity in different parts of the brain, which is what neurostimulation can do. Uh, and then just a third thing, another thing that neurostimulation can do is basically what could be called decoupling. So when you do a brain assessment, you might actually see that some areas of the brain are rigid, like there's a lot of communication, for example, but it's almost like people are yelling at each other and they're not really yeah. communicating effectively. So there's ways yeah. to actually almost like get the brain to kind of reset and say, mm-hmm. oh, look, okay, let's stop what we're doing here. And then, oh, let's try to operate in this way instead. So right. there's stimulation that does something along those lines. Yeah. So what does that feel like to like to be the person in the chair? What's that experience like? Hmm. I think it's exciting. Uh, and that's just a reflection on what I see with most clients when they come in. Mm-hmm. They're excited to actually basically work with the brain. Uh, I don't know yes. how else to say it, but that really is how I would sum it up. It's an excitement. Well, that I guess what I'm, directly what I'm curious about. Yeah. Okay. So what, I guess what I'm curious about is like, if I were to imagine being in the room, what do I do? What do I expect I'm going to okay. do? What do I expect? Like, do okay. I sit in a chair? Am I reclined? Yes. Do I get yep. to sleep? Do I have to do anything? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, oftentimes you'll see different practitioners do different ways of what that okay. experience would look like. For me personally, I just like to have uh, an environment that's really calm and soothing. So yeah. I try to, as much as possible, make things as less clinical as possible, less sterile. So I kind of treat it like, okay, it should be like a living room where you walk in and you feel comfortable just to at that level, help to uh, make people feel comfortable where they're at. And so basically you would sit in a chair, for example, and depending on what you're trying to do in terms of a protocol, uh, oftentimes you might, for example, if neurofeedback training, there's a screen that you would watch to do the training. So like that spaceship that I mentioned, you'd watch that on the screen uh, and then you'd be coached on how you're doing that. Uh, But often what's really cool about neurostimulation is, and this is where the integration comes. I do like to do a lot of psychotherapy counseling with clients while we're actually working with different parts of the brain. And even tie it back to that example of PTSD with frontline workers, this is huge. I mean, oftentimes... I think some of the blocks that you'll see in psychotherapy is that, yes, you're doing processing. It's not that you're not, but because of a particular block like dissociation or trauma, Mm -hmm. you can go only so far, but if you actually affect change in the brain while you're actually doing that processing, I think that's such a kind of key element to 
making yeah. change, like with that particular condition, for example. You know? Totally. I think that's the thing I'm most excited about. Um, mm. Because I think that's the piece that I see the most hope in, right? Like, and because I do exclusively trauma therapy, like that's a hundred percent of my time. Okay. Um, I see those block moments all the time yes, where yeah. I look at it and go like, oh man, we're just like really hung up here. And mm -hmm. I know we can keep working at this, but it's, it feels like just this like gradual kind of painstaking effort yes. um, where I, I hope that this brings more capacity for hope that we can make kind of bigger, more substantial movements in some of those areas. Um, mm -hmm. I think you and I have talked about some of the limitations in, in having that maybe show up more in conventional mm -hmm. therapy practices and, um, even in spaces like this, where we try to be a bit more innovative, but there are certainly right. some limitations in jumping into something sure. like this, but we can get to that in a minute. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, the couple of questions I want to link to in this is how often do people generally do, um, like, uh, like the, the neurofeedback kind of training sessions or, um, like the decoupling kinds of work, like how frequently would that happen? How many sessions does that tend to look like? Is it something that people do for quite a long stretch of time or is it like a handful of sessions and then they go back about their business? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's a whole range of possibilities. And I think on average though, yeah. I would say that because of the nature of what we're doing, I do actually tend to see clients on a more regular basis and also mm -hmm. over perhaps what you would consider a longer period of time. And I think that's okay. mainly because there actually is more changes that are occurring that we're doing. Yeah. And so what I mean is you might come in and want help with your sleep quality, but then we absolutely get to that. We improve your sleep, but then what happens is, well, that just relates to so many other issues that you might have. And then what happens is people just want to continue to optimize. And so yeah. on average, I think because of that desire to optimize, uh, I think people tend to want to keep working with the brain. So that's where I kind of get mm -hmm. that long term. Uh, type of yeah. response. But in terms of a response and how soon you might see a change, uh, it could vary, but absolutely, it could even just be within that session. So for example, mm. I've just this morning, I was working with a client where she was highly anxious. And then I did one type of stimulation, it's called photobiomodulation. And okay. it was just really nice to see, like it really helped to calm the limbic system. And suddenly she was mm. able to just kind of reduce uh, muscle tension in her body, relax. And that was immediate. So again, during session, you can actually see a change. And then of course, mm. what you want to do though, is make long-term change over time. And I think that's what you start to see. So one of the advantages going back to the assessment is that you can actually compare now. Okay, we did a brain map in the beginning. Let's see, we've done four sessions. What has shifted? And so you yeah. have a person's subjective experience, which is so important. It's always missed mm -hmm. out or kind of minimized. So you really want to see what a client notices, even if it's subtle. But then again, you have that tangible physiological measure to compare with. And that totally. is usually validating for clients as well. And so even if a client might not initially notice change, they start to see, oh, that makes sense. You know, there was a shift here uh, and then actually things might have felt like it was getting worse, but it was because you were connecting to your emotional states more. And that was part mm -hmm. of the process. So yeah. perhaps that might lead to some other questions that you have, but 
uh, there's different responses that people have. And that's why I say there's still a broad range of possibilities. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, and I know that this is used for such a diverse range of like mm -hmm. symptom presentation and diagnostic pieces. And um, so fair that there's maybe not like one really great solid, well, the average is six sessions and you come weekly for 20 mm -hmm. minutes or whatever, right? Like that's fair. Right. Um, I just always think it's, it's helpful. It's not what I'm promoting. Yeah. I, I get that. That's fair game. Um, I think as um, like when I think about being the consumer of a service, I always like to have a bit of a sense of knowing what I'm getting myself into. Mm, right. Sure. So like I've been to like doctor's appointments that I expected were going to take 15 minutes and I was there for four yeah. hours and I didn't four plan hours. for that. Right. Like, no, no. So knowing expectations. like right like being able to kind of shape what i can imagine that's going to be like helps me feel more inclined to say yeah to the thing than yes. feeling like i have reservations about it right um and so i think even just knowing that like even within a session i might notice something different like that feels motivating it is motivating and then if you wanted to talk about averages so let's now go into that so yeah like on average i think do people do notice positive changes in their symptoms at least from like a few sessions, say four to six sessions. Yeah. Uh, most people uh, on average, again, at four to 10 sessions, maybe up to 10, and then they start to realize that something is shifting. So yeah. there's a number of factors for that. But again, just as an average, say four to 10 sessions. And yeah. the reason why I say that it's so broad too is, I mean, in my situation, I'm seeing all kinds of clients too. So mm -hmm. what that means is, if you see someone with traumatic brain injury, stroke, that will yeah. likely present differently, for example, than someone that has seemingly the common, you know, issues with like totally. sleep issues or, or anxiety. Uh, but then other people have multiple things as well that they're concerned totally. about. So it's a question of, okay, you want to improve your, your number one issue is anxiety. So let's work with that. And then there's other things that you want to optimize as well. So then that's yeah. when things become more, uh, seemingly like there's more sessions, but again, it's just trying to optimize as much as you can, at least how I see it. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. Okay. So then I'm going to jump to kind of like the flip side of it. Are there things that this doesn't work well with? Are there any mm -hmm. um, contraindications to using this approach or people for whom um, it wouldn't work or the circumstances wouldn't be safer in their client's best interest? Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that you have to look out for when you're doing your therapy is, I don't know, it, it's not everyone, but sometimes I think people think almost like with yoga and meditation that, oh, there can only be positive benefits from this and nothing negative right. can happen. But the reality is if you're affecting huge, significant, positive change, you have the capacity with that modality to make negative change. And so yeah. as an example, what I mean is, if we know, for example, that person with ADHD has an increase in slow frequencies, like technically you could train that frequency higher and make symptoms worse. Mm -hmm. So that's right. why, again, going back to the comprehensive assessment, you really want to know what is happening in the brain, explore that with a client, really listen to their concerns and symptoms and make good clinical judgments about what protocols you're going to do. Because absolutely, you can actually make things worse in one sense. But having said that, so that's one of the first kind of contraindications is you want someone that does have some experience and knowledge about 
uh, mm -hmm. multiple levels of how the brainwaves function and different networks and all those things. Uh, right. Another thing is oftentimes it, it seems like a negative symptom. It's, it's part of the process, but oftentimes people might have changes that subjectively feel negative. So one of the examples actually, again, with PTSD is that if you have someone that's dissociated, they're not connecting to their emotions. And then suddenly mm -hmm. when you're doing therapy, neurotherapy specifically, they actually have the ability to connect to more emotional states, but that's the full gamut of emotions often. Right. So they, they don't all feel good. Irritation, frustration, they don't feel good. I feel a bit sad. I feel yeah. anxious, depressed, but they're actually connecting to them now. So mm -hmm. it's important for, I think, a therapist to be able to, first of all, support that. Uh, so yeah. to know almost what to do when things like that happen, like when there are emotional releases, but then also to let clients know that that is a possibility, for example, that these are symptoms totally. that you might connect to, uh, but it is likely part of the process. And then again, what you have as another tool is that assessment. Again, you can actually show a client, oh, this is how your brain is shifting. We can actually see that the limbic system is a bit calmer and it's now connecting to your frontal cortex and your cognitive network. So you're actually experiencing things more. So that's okay. But yes, mm -hmm. we, we don't want you to have, uh, be overwhelmed by this. We want to help you through this process. So again, that's mm -hmm. where having different tools and even modalities to help with that would be important during those times. Totally. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because I think that it's one of the things I often say to clients is that when we do trauma therapy, where we're processing and we're trying to reduce layers of dissociation, it often feels worse before it feels better because mm -hmm. of that exact experience of like, as we move past the dissociative kind of layers and walls yes. that our brain and body have put up in order to be able to function. Mm -hmm. um, and we try to touch in a little bit more to actually how we're doing, actually how we're feeling. Right. Sometimes we're opening like cans of worms we haven't opened in decades. Mm -hmm. And it does mm -hmm. feel much more uncomfortable before we get to more comfortable. And so yes. I, I think it's really important that we kind of advise and support clients and again, knowing what to expect, setting expectations so that they don't feel like, oh my gosh, I did therapy and I'm worse. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. it was a surprise. That's always a hard thing that. to feel like. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. It is. Well, it was supposed to help me. I'm supposed to feel better. Like you broke right, me. I'm right. worse than when I started. Right. Like I think we set right. ourselves up as therapists for, for having a bad rap if we don't do a better yes. job of preparing yes. clients for the fact that that's how it can feel. Well, absolutely. And yeah. it's basically psychoeducation about the processes, right? Like if we just educate really? uh, clients about what likely are possible processes, then that's actually, it's not even about trying to manipulate or just tell them, oh, this is how it's going to yeah. happen or, oh, it's, you'll be fine in four sessions or this is when you're going to notice things. Right. I think some people do that, but I just, I think just being yeah. genuine and honest is so important mm -hmm. because it's yeah. partly why you're able to get clients to actually uh, be able to connect to what you're doing and then also to share and to be able to be vulnerable with you. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it sounds like the actual answer in, in the grand scheme of things isn't that there's really contraindications in terms of what a client might come with and right, like a diagnosis or a symptom set or whatever. Most of it can benefit from this in some way, shape or form. It sounds like the contraindications are more related to the clinician and just that the clinician has sufficient experience and understanding to be able to do what they're doing really well. So 
this is a question I didn't prep you for. And if it's not cool to ask, that's fine. But I guess what I'm curious about is, um, are there ways to know the difference? Are there are there things that people as consumers should be looking for in the type of clinician that they seek out that can give them a sense of confidence that this is someone who's quite competent as mm, opposed right. to someone who's maybe not so much? Yes, yes. Well, I think if you go into the research and you might ask me about the research, but there absolutely are levels of efficacy that have been established for certain okay. conditions. And so that's where you would, perhaps put that in as contraindications. For example, there's levels of, uh, I believe it's 80, no, no, it's with autism, the, the spectrum. Okay. Basically, it, with the AAPB, which is one of the bodies that uh, regulate mm-hmm. or at least uh, promote biofeedback, it at this point in the research isn't necessarily shown to be significantly effective for working with right. autism. But what's interesting yeah. is, clinicians are still using that and and researchers are still using neurotherapy. And I think the reason is because like the research just hasn't caught up yet with understanding and something as complex as being on the spectrum uh, itself, it's, it's very difficult to show efficacy with certain types of conditions because it's quite Mm -hmm. broad with the possibilities of change and how a person is experiencing symptoms. Uh, It's not as easy Mm. as uh, like other conditions where you can really just isolate a symptom or a particular condition. Uh, so people, mm-hmm. to get reassurance, I think one of the things to do is, first of all, probably look at the background of the practitioner. So uh, there's a organization called the Biofeedback uh, Certification International Alliance, BCIA. Okay. And on there, it's basically the main regulatory type of body that's regulating yeah. neurotherapy. And there's a list of practitioners by region in North America and also parts of uh, uh, other parts of the world that you can look at practitioners that have at least that certification. And I think that's at least mm-hmm. a very good standard for people to have that, oh, it's not just someone that uh, picked up on some system and started utilizing it with clients. They at least know the history of how things have developed, uh, the different yeah. uh, researchers that have been involved and the different clinicians and what the current state of neurotherapy and biofeedback overall has been. So I think that's important, you know, again, looking at the background of the the clinician. And then I just wanted to tie in back to your question about contraindications. I think, and it does tie into what the experience and the understanding of a clinician is, but I think there are conditions where just intuitively and also with the research, you might not want to necessarily delve into too much with say some of the mm-hmm. specific types of treatments. So it gets kind of okay. broad and a little bit more dynamic than just to say, oh, you shouldn't use this for this particular condition. But for right. example, uh, let's see, a lot of neurotherapy has actually been used a lot with uh, like seizure activity and people with uh, epilepsy. Mm-hmm. I personally right now, I'm not wanting to take on clients with seizures, just because mm. in my opinion, I think there should be really important support mechanisms that I can't provide at this uh, type of environment that I have now to allow for yeah. proper treatment and also support in case there are seizures that occur. And so mm. that yeah. becomes an important understanding of each condition that, okay, uh, for example, with traumatic brain injury, I often want to have at least the knowledge that they're seeing a neurologist 
because you want them to be doing their yeah. levels of expertise and their understanding to assess and see if even neurotherapy is, is okay for them to do given what their condition is with the brain. Yeah. So I think that also ties into to help with knowing if something is helpful is to make sure that it's not just, oh, it's a one size fits all thing where, and unfortunately I see that yeah. sometimes people see multiple types of uh, modalities and then I become this last resort almost of where clients come mm-hmm. in and then they just want me to kind of fix them. But I, I think it's so important that you're working with oftentimes like multiple people so that you're actually getting the benefits of whether it be psychotherapy, uh, neurologists, depending on your condition, and then other types of mm-hmm. therapies to help with your condition. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like a magic wand, right? Hmm. And I think that's the thing that all of us as consumers wish we could find. And isn't that what we kind of feel like with everything? We want the pill that just makes it all Hmm. better. We want, you know, whatever the easy thing is. And I don't think that neurotherapy is going to be that thing. But I do think it's cool that it kind of dives to the heart of things differently Hmm. by really connecting to the like mechanisms where the broken things are happening in a different way than we can when we talk about like talk therapy and things like that, where we're really only scratching the surface of what we could be accessing and could be supporting differently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that you're kind of advocating for this integrative care kind of model, because I think that that's really valuable. Yes. For sure. Yes. It's cool to have this be, I wish that this were a piece that more people knew about as part of yes. their own comprehensive care model. Behind the Line is sponsored by Beating the Breaking Point. Beating the Breaking Point is a seven-part online training program designed specifically for first responders and frontline workers and tailored to fill the gaps in your training to support resilience and sustainability. Whether you're new to the work and wanting to cultivate tools to prevent burnout, compassion fatigue, and related concerns, or you are deep into your years on the job and have gone a few rounds with burnout and other mental health challenges, this program offers the foundational pieces you need to support personal and professional wellness for the long haul. You are a helper. You love your work and you sacrifice a lot. Investing in you and your sustainability is the best gift you can give yourself and those who lean on you. We make this program as risk-free as possible by offering a limited money back guarantee to ensure that it's a fit for you. If you enjoy Behind the Line, you are going to love this program. Google Beating the Breaking Point Lindsay and find everything you need to get started or use the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Well, even as an example, so I'm really focused, of course, on the brain, but it's almost impossible not to realize that the body is such a huge connection to that. So I think you might know mm-hmm. about the gut-brain connection. So how your stomach, how your yeah. your body is doing has a huge impact on how your brain is functioning. So addressing that with either a naturopath or uh, I like, for example, functional medicine doctors that actually look at that yeah. as part of their practice and it's more integrative, that to me makes a lot more sense. So again, it's starting from that, being able to be comprehensive with the brain, but then also the body and everything else that would be important. Yeah. Hmm. So just to also circle back, I know that 
just because there's so many things that I could talk about. I think you were mentioning about what yeah. a session would look like. So I mentioned about the yeah. cap, but what I wanted to talk about is, again, some of those stimulations, for example, that I do. Yeah, so totally. Let me just show you a few things. So one of the stimulations. It's like show I and tell is, time. Yeah, pretty much. Of course, I'm a gadget kind of person, so I have tons of gadgets. So maybe it. for people in yeah. the audience that don't have a visual here, you can describe what I'm doing. But basically, there's yeah. coils that we use that create what are called pulsed electrical magnetic fields. And so okay. this field is what you see with like pretty much all electronics. But what's really good about it is you can actually set it to the frequencies that you're wanting to help the brain to get entrained in. So again, if you okay. want to calm the limbic system, you would put the coils in a location that would help to uh, bring calmer parasympathetic frequencies to that part of the brain that it's lacking from the assessment that you're okay. seeing. So that's yeah. one powerful way to go right to that area. Uh, another type of stimulation is the one I mentioned in the beginning, which is transcranial electrical stimulation. And so what that looks okay. like is there's basically two electrodes to maybe four or six electrodes that you would put on. They just stick on top of the head. Mm -hmm. And okay. from this, I would target the areas that we're seeing from the brain map. And so I might not okay. have talked about it too much, but when you look at the comprehensive assessment, you're not just measuring, and this is so important, you're not just measuring the top of the head. From the top mm -hmm. of the head, you can see so much about different parts of the brain that are deeper and how they're functioning. Yeah. Like, for example, uh, different networks of the brain, the default mode network, the resting state networks. There's even networks for specific conditions. So what I mean is when you're talking about anxiety, yeah. there's a lot of research that's already been done that have linked different parts of the brain that are active when you're in a certain condition. So let's take a look at that yeah. network and see how it's doing and how that relates to your symptoms. So it becomes that specific. Totally. We can target a network that's related to your condition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then just one yeah, more. Which was, I think, your master's that. research and mine vicariously. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a fun one. So this is not a bike helmet, uh, but it does look like one. Okay. So this just goes on top of the head. I also look, I realize what it reminds me of. It's the, uh, the Padawan learners when in Star Wars. Yes, totally. Jedis, yeah. They're wearing that and then they have the sword. Yeah. Anyways, so what this is, yeah. is it's what's called photobiomodulation. So it's another type of stimulation. Okay. But it's using infrared lights and okay. the analog to it, you might have heard of red light therapy for the body, but basically okay. it's a wavelength yeah. that you can't see, infrared light that stimulates the brain. And so what we're doing here okay. uh, with the research, what you're seeing is that there's an increase in ATP production, so energy to the cells. Uh, you're seeing, okay. when you're using photobiomodulation, you're seeing the reduction of inflammation, increased blood flow to the brain. Mm -hmm. So essentially all things that are so significant for healing and mm -hmm. promoting the yeah. brain to function better. So you're going to yeah. see that with the research increase to not where it's currently at, which is usually with traumatic brain injury, it's been applied to dementia, mm -hmm. uh, memory issues. But because it's operating at a cellular level and improving things like reducing inflammation, you're likely going to see it apply to a number of things such as mental conditions, uh, anxiety, yeah. depression, uh, absolutely depression. Uh, you'll see that there's certain frequencies that tend to get increased when you're doing that type of stimulation. So there's a lot mm -hmm. that you can start to do to really optimize and help the brain to function better. And 
I know I keep saying that, but it just seems so fundamental to us. And oftentimes it's just, to me, the missing piece. Sometimes we're, we're trying to do things, but we're not actually looking at the controller, the, the computer, yeah. so to speak, of this whole system, which is our brains. And why not try to understand it more, explore together, see how it fits with your symptoms, and then use that work together to understand your brain and then actually affect change to the brain. And eventually, of course, your symptoms and your, your different uh, concerns or conditions. Okay, so let's now that we've established how fantastic this tool is, talk about why not everyone is using it. Uh, so like, why do you think that why, this isn't being people, used more conventionally? Well, I think one of the things is maybe the complexity of it. So if you, yeah. you hear me talking, I, I already mentioned probably four or five types of stimulation and treatment that you can do. So I think people perhaps, for example, with clinicians, they struggle to integrate it into their practices because there's yeah. just so many possibilities. So you, mm -hmm. you might see a client or a, a clinician try to integrate it with, for example, with trauma therapy. And I think mm -hmm. there's times where they might see success, but what might be missing is maybe that first piece, that comprehensive assessment. Yeah. So they might not be doing like a, a QEG or full brain map. And so they mm -hmm. might see changes, but then they start to kind of use it haphazardly because mm -hmm. it might work with certain situations, but not with certain clients. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why, because there's a missing piece that's usually there. Mm -hmm. So it might be the assessment or even sometimes the training modalities. People might just use one type of uh, treatment. Uh, so mm -hmm. it might just be neurofeedback training. And again, not to put down just neurofeedback training, people have had huge success with that over decades. Uh, but oftentimes you might see that for, it would take 40 sessions until you start to see changes when you're just doing straight neurofeedback training. And so when you start to combine and look at different treatments as tools, then it actually makes sense that the more that you have at your disposal, you're able to affect more change perhaps. Uh, and, and as long as you're doing that comprehensive assessment, then you can see what areas of the brain might benefit from this type of stimulation and maybe not this one. So that mm -hmm. understanding just comes from, I guess, more experience, but just time as well. So you'll see less yeah. clinicians, maybe <clears throat> less effectively integrated into their practices. And then the ones that do, it's just a certain type of symptom or condition that they might be working with. And that's totally fine. Uh, but again, that might yeah. not necessarily promote it to be used with uh, a larger gamut or a broader range of conditions. Uh, sure. The other reason I would say is probably just the politics involved with how mm. almost threatening neurotherapy is. Because mm -hmm. if you look at the state of, for example, psychology, just as an example, uh, often they would want to do assessments based on, you know, the paper and pen or online assessments where you answer a number of questions, a battery of tests, and there's validity to that. But what it's threatening is it's not actually measuring how your mind is functioning, which is basically your brain. And I don't know how many times you'll see, again, there's usefulness to the assessments, but you'll see a client do a battery of tests only for the, to say that, oh, you have moderate anxiety. And the client already knew mm -hmm. that. And it didn't really provide yeah. any more additional information or even roots to actually okay. work with that anxiety. And then you do a brain map 
and you would actually see, oh gosh, it's this part of the brain, it's this network, and oh, you likely would benefit from this type of treatment or even another type of therapy because of what we're seeing from the brain. And so because of that, you'll see that discrepancy where a lot of fields are kind of threatened that, oh, the whole way that we're doing something might not be as efficient as we're doing it. And so I think Mm -hmm. you're seeing some pushback from that, but you are also seeing changes. Like some of the the fields are opening up to the use of it. And another example, just one more, is the medical field. Uh, They often Mm -hmm. use brainwave EEG and electrical activity, uh, but it's usually limited. They're looking at the morphology or the waveforms and looking for spikes, for example, for seizure activity, but they're not looking at it from a functional standpoint, like, oh, how is your brain is functioning and how can we use that to actually do other types of stimulation or types of treatments towards Mm -hmm. the brain? So it's somewhat limited. Yeah. Fair. So those are kind of a few reasons for it. There's probably a number of other ones, but those are the few of the main ones. I can tell you that the number one obstacle for me is it's so extraordinarily cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of, if you want to do it well, you want to do more yeah. than a thing and yes. each of the things are like 20 grand just for the equipment before you even get trained in how to use it properly. And that training right. is, you know, years of your life on top yes. of what you've already done in master's Absolutely. level, you know, sacrificial lambing your life to this. Mm. Um, it, it does, it adds up really quickly. So I know you and I had a conversation where I had said like, okay, so if you could pick one thing, what would it be? Cause I would love, I would love to see this be used more. I would love to see it integrated into our clinic. Right. Um, but for sure it feels so overwhelming as a clinician to think I already have absolutely a full caseload of clients. I'm already maxed out. I want to add this to help, but now to do that, it's like, such mm-hmm. a big mountain to climb. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think yeah. so. It, it is a huge factor. So the, the finances towards training and then the equipment itself and the software, it is quite expensive. Uh, and then mm-hmm. it, it does take someone that would really want to be passionate or connected to it and find it meaningful. Yeah. And But determination with that, because even if you yeah. know that it's helpful, if you're not determined enough to, you know what, I'm just going to keep learning. So those are obstacles. Another obstacle is simply yeah. what you just mentioned. So with equipment comes understanding of if you're not necessarily technical or working with computers is perhaps an issue. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a lot of software. There's a lots of different kinds of analysis. So uh, oftentimes I see that with people as well, that that could be a barrier as well, like the mm-hmm. comfort yeah. levels with different equipment and technology, yeah. but it is basically. I do also technology. think that like as a clinician, it's also harder. Um, so like other types of things have like a, a more centralized training model, right? So like EMDR, mm-hmm. things like that, you like, you go to emdr.com right. and you sign right. up for a so training structured. and you can get it. So structured. Right. Like it's so structured and it's so centralized. It's the same with like sensory motor therapy mm-hmm. or like other kinds of of treatment mechanisms, there's a very centralized way of accessing mm. the training and any equipment related yes. to, et cetera. With this, it's so varied and all over the place. And like even a, a like very quick Google takes you down a zillion different rabbit holes. And, and you kind of leave it being higher, like, I don't know where to yeah. start. <laughs> and, and you won't. And I think, yeah. I don't know, 
one of the issues that I'll bring up in terms of why it's not necessarily uh, understood or, or known as well as it should be is also because of the field itself. So what I mean yeah. by that is exactly what you described. When you do a Google search, you're going to see system here, system here, different approach here. Yeah. There's a lack, in my opinion, of integration or at least even respect with some of these yeah. people that are doing the neurofeedback. So you'll get one person with, oh, here's this neurooptimal system. And I, I swear by this system, this is the best and mm -hmm. I'm not going to do anything else. And then you'll get this other yeah. group that, oh, we only use databases and this is the best approach and we're only going to do that. And so mm -hmm. I find it personally difficult, even as a clinician that's experienced in this to actually navigate to say, you know what, actually, I can utilize this piece of what you're doing here, but I can also utilize this. And I think totally. from that, if you're able to have the, I would say, I guess, luxury to have the time and effort to look at multiple approaches and systems within the field, then suddenly things yeah. do become more clear. And so yeah. I can actually start to tell you, you know, I think this might be helpful for your particular population that you're working. This might be a better route to really focus on this, but also add this piece to it as well. So yeah. through that experience, you get to see that there's multiple systems. And I think navigating that is a challenge, but I think over time yeah. you will get an answer if you just be determined to get through all right. the different systems and the costs and different approaches. This is now the quest I'm going to have to be on, Michael. <laughs> I mean, I think, I guess the take home message for those listening, because they're probably like, okay, you're now nerd ranting guys, um, is that part of why it's challenging to maybe find someone who does this and find someone who does it really well um, is that from a, a clinical perspective as professionals, it's not the easiest thing to jump into. Um, and so it might you might find that it is harder to find someone who's great at it um, and who does it in some of the ways that Michael's shared about because there's a lot of layers of barriers for us as professionals to get our own access to it, to be able to provide it as a service really comprehensively to mm -hmm. people. Um, so I guess in my last big question, Michael would be, how can people find out more about you, about neurotherapy that is more, um, comprehensive and, and able to kind of attribute for the complexity of people's situations, brains, diagnoses, um, what would be like next steps for someone who listens today and is really curious and wants to see what comes next? Mm -hmm. Well, as you can tell from the interview, I, I just love talking about this stuff. So I could just keep going on and on and on. So I know we could be example, here I mean, with myself, I, I, I just love uh, connecting to like new clients and just talking about the process because it does take time and investment. Mm -hmm. But it's so enjoyable for me to be able to do that to talk about mm -hmm. all these different kind of questions and trying to understand what could be helpful for a particular person. But that's where again, having different experiences to share with a client is important. So for example, with myself, you could contact me uh, through my phone number uh, so I can give that to you. Mm -hmm. Or did you want me to describe it here or just- If you wanna shoot me, no. Um, why don't you just shoot me some of the information that would be most helpful for people to contact and I will make sure all of it is in the show notes. So for those yeah. listening or watching, you can find it there. Right, and I'll give you my updated website soon. So probably within a month okay. that will be up and, and going. Uh, in terms of other resources, so there's a few of them. Uh, one of them is the one that I mentioned already, which is BCIA. So you can just Google that. Okay. It's again, the Biofeedback Certification International Alliance, and they're the main regulatory body 
that helps to promote standards for neurotherapy. So that's a good place to get some information about at least neurofeedback and then also biofeedback and a list of practitioners that are within different regions. So that helps to kind of give some standard. And then another website is what's called ISNR. So it's the International Society for Neuroregulation and Research. And it's a good resource for describing about what neurofeedback is, QEG assessments, Mm -hmm. and all the research. Like there's just so much research that's been done for decades, which I don't know if we kind of covered, but this whole practice has started probably from, I'd say this individual, his name is Hans Berger, who first measured brainwave activity in the 1920s. So there's yeah. a whole progression of, you know, this has been around right. for a while and then it just evolved and just continues to evolve at an exponential rate at this point. Yeah. So I really do believe it's the cutting edge of what you'll start seeing with applications in medical fields and, and psychology eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that for sure does seem to be the the trajectory that we're on. And I can't remember who it was, but one of the like major players in psychology had talked about how uh, they believe that the new name for psychology and psychotherapy down the road will be brain science and brain therapy. Yes. Um, yes. And it's because of this, right? Totally. Uh, just because I am, I guess, a nerd. I Can I just describe one more thing? So essentially, I mentioned, I mentioned about different types of therapies. So I mentioned about neurofeedback, yeah. neurostimulation. So another thing that I really enjoy doing is what's called just basically biofeedback. So it's more yes. specifically peripheral biofeedback. So you can measure the brain waves. So that's neurofeedback and referring to neurotherapy too. Yeah. But with biofeedback, you can also measure other parts of the body. So you can measure things like heart rate variability, skin conductance, respiration, temperature, muscle tension. If you really think about these things, these are all important for the physiological responses, for example, of emotional states. So we can help clients to literally regulate their emotional states because we can actually see how their brain is functioning. So it's literally the same sensors that you might see in a lie detector. I'm not going to be doing that type of assessment with clients, but you can actually start to regulate. Oh, you'll see someone with anxiety and they don't realize because they've never been able to have access to this information. Oh, you think you're actually relaxed, but you're not. Look at all the tension that's showing up Mm -hmm. in your your muscles right now, or your temperature is so low. So there's less blood flow Mm -hmm. to your peripheries. So that means that your blood flow is more to your core organs when you're in a more anxious state or in a sympathetic state. So if you can help to use those measures to train yourself, and then you teach yourself literally to regulate those states, that's another application, Mm -hmm. major application for frontline workers. And it kind of ties into what I want to do is to kind of develop some products where it would be more accessible to the consumer, not just in a clinical setting, but just people in general to be able to measure how their body is functioning and to help train themselves to get into, at the very least, uh, parasympathetic or calm states. Yeah, and you can do that with biofeedback training. And that is one of the yeah. things that with the AAPB, I mentioned the efficacy levels, that's like literally one of the mm-hmm. highest efficacy ratings because biofeedback has been around for decades, just measuring body processes and training it. So we we haven't seen that enough of. So anyways, I want to mention that. (laughs) I love it. 
I love the nerding out together, Michael. I would nerd out with you all day, every day, if I could, because this was fun. (laughs) This was super fun. Okay, I'm curious if you have any final thoughts, anything that you're going to regret that you didn't touch on or say, and if not, then we can sign off. Okay, well, I just wanted to first thank you so much for having me on your podcast. And just from what you've described, I'd love to know more details about what you are doing at your Uh, clinic and then also just with uh, this podcast but from what I've seen like I think it's such a crucial thing that has been missing it has been on my mind I've actually talked to a number of therapists that it just makes sense to try to see what is out there in terms of other unconventional therapies but kind of bring things together because so many people are missing out on what are such huge uh, inroads and literally the cutting edge of what we can do and it's just not being applied enough yeah. and there's just too much for example confusion or uh, politics involved with why it's not happening but I think frontline workers yeah. are just not addressed with as much so I think your podcast is just opening eyes for your viewers to so many possibilities of what can be helpful for them you know yeah thanks Michael yeah I mean I think that you know, when I think back on like why I got into all of this to begin with, it was like the whole, I just want to make a difference thing. Right. Like, and that was like why I got into therapy. It's why this podcast exists. It's why I want to figure out how to add neurotherapy as a thing in our clinic. Like every single thing is just like, oh, I see so much hurting. I just want to make it different. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there's so many of us like that, right? And to some extent, I think it's why our audience is often struggling as much as they're struggling is because they have the same heart. They are out there working and grinding every day in systems that don't appreciate them enough um, and ask way too much of them for way too little in return. And then they're left trying to figure out how to piece themselves back together when they've kind of been chewed up and spat out by the whole situation. But they do all of that because they want to make a difference. And so I think it's a, a population that I just like, I feel it. Like, I feel like we're aligned that we, we all go into it with this goal of just wanting to make the world a little bit better and make a difference. And it's hard that so much of their work does cost so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think as you're doing this, you're probably going to start realizing that one of the keys to actually providing this and having this accessible to frontline workers is to actually have a structure now or even a sequence. So mm-hmm. most people have difficulty just knowing where to start, right? So if we as clinicians start to work together more and, and more truly, yeah. genuinely integrate we can actually see something like, oh, you're coming in with this particular condition. Well, guess what? We know that you might benefit from doing this assessment, this assessment, uh, doing some neurotherapy, doing a brain map, doing physiotherapy, doing uh, seeing counseling. But then if you're able to integrate it and know what's important for when, and then having a structure for Mm -hmm. it, and a place that actually understands and respects different modalities, then you're onto something where people actually have access and then know how it's to- like you stuff. believe collaborative care is possible, Michael. Yeah. It's so beautiful. It is I possible. 
I mean, it feels a little bit like innocent and naive right now because I feel oh, like no, the world is. is not going that direction. You, but I like a hundred percent feel like that is my heart in this. Like I think about my great hopes and plans for what I hope yes. our clinic looks like yes. even five years from now. And a hundred percent, the goal of it is how do we make it increasingly wrap around care for the people that we're serving? Yes. And I wish that was everyone's angle in it. I, I think even just going back to when I mentioned what I do, that's con- unconventional, which actually just is logical. I think you have yeah. to start with like a comprehensive assessment and, and analysis. So understand the different modalities, whatever it might be, physiotherapy, a naturopath, a nutritionist, a doctor, psychologist, neurotherapy, but put in pieces of assessments from each of these. And then mm-hmm. on the front end, a client would likely do a number of these assessments. And then again, the more information, the more comprehensiveness that you have yeah. in understanding, then it would make sense. Oh, the functional medicine doctor is mentioning that there's gut issues. So let's work on those gut issues first definitely do a brain map so that we can at least track things and then go from yeah. there to doing counseling, but only after this has happened. So mm-hmm. again, that integration piece first starts with uh, understanding and exploring, you know, what are. Well, and it's so in alignment, on. right? Like we talk a lot on this show about how any, any change, good, better, otherwise, frankly, but mm-hmm. like any good change has to start from a place of awareness. If we don't know where we are and we don't know where we want to go, we can't get there. We can't, like, Mm. we're not just going to magically happenstance end up in an awesome place when we haven't kind of taken an inventory. So a lot of what we talk about on the show is how do we slow ourselves down? How do we like stop and take stock of where we're really at and how we're really doing so that we know what's not working. We know what's deficient. We know what's mm. tripping us up. We know where we're struggling because we so mm. often get caught in the just going and doing kind of autopilot mode of life that mm. we don't even realize how depressed we are until we're so far down the hole that it's now like impossible to feel like we can dig ourselves back out. But like that didn't just happen. No, we didn't, didn't just magically show up in depressed land one day. Like it was a steady decline. We just never stop to notice like, oh, yesterday I felt here and today I'm feeling here. Huh? Oh, look, and tomorrow I'm down here again. Oh, that seems like there's like a trend. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense to me that we would that if we're asking people to do this on an independent individual day in their lives level, of course, we should be doing that same kind of assessment process where we're really taking an inventory, we're really taking stock of where someone's at so that we can figure out how we get to where we're trying to go. Mm-hmm. How do we know what better looks like if we don't know what we're starting with? Yeah, yeah. No, totally. Hmm. Okay, so you and I were just going to figure out how to change the world and it's no small problem. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> we're going to do that. Right, okay. <laughs> I feel like I really need a glass of wine now. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> feel like that's going to help. Okay. Well, Michael, I just really want to thank you because this was a really fun conversation and I, I'm really excited to see what people take from this. I'm really excited to see how many phone calls you get. Um, I hope you let me know. I hope those in our audience listening, let me know. And if anyone has any questions who's listening, also feel free to reach out on any of our like social media channels or by email because I would love to answer what questions I can answer, which probably isn't a ton. Um, And what I can't answer, I will happily direct back to Michael. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Michael. We will talk with you soon. I really enjoyed this. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Awesome. I want to extend one more big thank you to Michael. What a gift to be joined by such an incredible expert and innovator. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you about our listener feedback survey. We're asking your feedback to help shape the future of Behind the Line to ensure that this is meeting your needs and covering topics that matter most to you. You can find the survey link in the show notes as well as on my social media pages. If you complete the survey before September 30th, you'll be entered to win a $50 Amazon gift card. Also, please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. You know I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. I love hearing about what you're working on and how you're using what we talk about on the show. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, where you can follow me or tag me, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. I'm grateful that many of you are keen to share about Behind the Line and spread the word to others on the front lines. Thank you so much for sharing with those you know. Know that we can be found online on our website, on most major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube. Click subscribe to get alerts about our latest episodes, or subscribe to our email list to hear from me about all the exciting things we have going on and coming up. You'll find all the details you need in the show notes, along with links to our free Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, which helps you facilitate self-assessing, burnout, and related concerns. We make all of this available to you because the work you do matters, but more than that, you matter, and we want to make sure that you have what you need to keep up the good work at work, as well as in your real life outside of the work. So use it and share it, and until next time, stay safe.